verse to follow. As I read, I'm going to be reading from Psalm 103 again this evening. The first six verses. Psalm 103, a psalm of David. Bless Jehovah, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless Jehovah, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy desire with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagle. Jehovah executeth righteous acts and judgments for all that are oppressed. <clears throat> Jehovah executeth righteous acts and judgments for all that are oppressed. Now it's probably obvious on the surface that we could preach on that one verse for a year if we were going to speak on all the righteous acts that Jehovah executes and has executed and all the judgments that he has pronounced for all the oppressed. But we're going to have to just keep it um, more simple than that with God's help. But that's what we're looking at is this one verse, Jehovah executeth righteous acts and judgments for all that are oppressed. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, upholding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. <clears throat> the author of that hymn, through the greatest part of his 68 years, suffered with terrible, terrible bouts of depression. That's not even saying enough. His depression was chronic. He was assailed with doubts of his salvation for years. I believe he was a young man, nearing 30, somewhere around there when he came to faith in Jesus Christ through the scriptures. And that was even after he had been committed to uh, an asylum for the mentally deranged. And some master of that, I forget his title, maybe he was the principal or whatever his title was, was a believer and he strategically left a Bible in a chair out in the garden. And this gentleman accidentally found it. 
and took to reading some of it. The Lord was pleased to bless that and give him assurance of faith. But it didn't last very long. If you took note of this hymn, you'll notice ups and downs. He he says things like blind unbelief is sure to err. And and he says uh, things like ye fearful saints and God moves in a mysterious way. But then he speaks about wonder and, and he will make it plain, he says. Sweet will be the flower, even though the bud may have a bitter taste. And his life was like that, up and down. And he had, I can't even really fully describe this chronic depression, but it was so great that there were no less than four times, and probably a number more, but four recorded times, four conspicuous times that he attempted to take his own life. And he could write a hymn like that. That's amazing, isn't it? That's astounding. Chronically assailed with doubts of his salvation, and he seriously attempted suicide at least four times. And after he had done that, he, he knew that he had sinned again. He didn't succeed, but he was attempting to take his own life. On one of those occasions, he decided to use a garter, I suppose that was the name for a rope of some sort, to hang himself. And the rope broke twice. The third time, he passed out, and the rope broke again. Somebody evidently didn't want to see him take his own life. But he made the attempt, and then he was even more concerned about his salvation. He doubted very much that God was going to be favorable to him because of these attempted suicides. A man named John J. Murray from the Free Church of Scotland, as far as I know, he's still with us. He may not even be as old as I am, but at any rate, he wrote a booklet You may have seen some of those Banner Truth booklets. A lot of them are very helpful even, and they're not long reading, they're they're small booklets, but he wrote one of his years as a Christian minister and counselor, using the wisdom of God's word to give guidance and direction. But behind a frowning providence, the title of this booklet, also bears the marks of a precious stone quarried from the deep and dark places of the author's own experience of pain and sorrow. If I remember correctly, I was in the Free Church of Scotland for a brief period. If I remember correctly, this man, in fact, the first time Barbara and I walked into this little building in in Livonia, not Lavonia, but Livonia, L-I, Michigan, this man was preaching. Turns out he'd come over for the Banner Truth Conference and he was filled, and he went there. He didn't come over for that, but he went to the conference and uh, he was supplying the pulpit in this, the only free church congregation in the entire United States. And there he was. At any rate, he was also leaving the next morning to return to Scotland. That's how they were doing it, six months at a time. 
But at any rate, I met him, and I believe that I discovered this uh, book afterwards. But at any rate, if I understand correctly, he had a son that died. I don't know the manner of his death, but he was in his teen years, as I understood. So he writes this behind a frowning providence to encourage, to try to comfort those who had suffered, who had experienced anything similar to what he himself had suffered and experienced, and that sorrow. And we're told uh, that it speaks to the mind, giving wise counsel. It also speaks to the heart and brings a message of encouragement which points to the way of true peace. Now, that little thing I just read, beginning with his name, John J. Murray, is a little blurb from Banner of Truth on their website about this. But it gives you the idea of why he wrote it, of course, and also why he would use these words from this hymn, Behind the Frowning Providence. I'm suggesting that it's not unlikely of course, I have no way of knowing, but it's not unlikely I would submit that David wrote this Psalm 103 with some reference, some reference, I say, to the loss of his son, Absalom, with a strong reflection upon his own sin, the chastisement of which was indirectly related to his son's death. We may argue it was directly related, but it was part of the, the pronounced punishment of chastening that Nathan declared to David because of his sin. But I think that it's not unlikely that David wrote this psalm. Most of the writers think that he wrote this in his later years. And if you look through it, if you read through it, and consider it, and so on, you see a man that's come to terms with how wonderful his God is, his God that, that forgave his iniquities, that healed all his diseases, that many times redeemed his life from destruction and crowned him with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfied his desire with good things so that his youth was renewed. He, he begins with that declaration of praise to our God. And yet he goes on speaking of a number of things that to me anyway, betray possibly some thoughts about the loss of his son and about his own sinfulness. You can hardly speak about forgiveness without considering your own sin. But I believe that it's possible that David wrote this with some reference to that and putting himself in the same place as John J. Murray and also the writer of this hymn that we have read reminding himself not to forget all those blessed benefits that he's declaring in this psalm that he had received from Jehovah that I've already enumerated. He thus, I say, preaches to all his readers and perhaps his hearers some 3,000 years ago that all of Jehovah's acts are righteous. They're all righteous. Even the taking of the life of Absalom, his son. Jehovah does all things in righteousness and his judgments are true and according to truth for all that are oppressed. Do you think David was oppressed? Surely he was oppressed. When he was fleeing from Absalom, he was particularly oppressed 
but we trust also from the pronouncement of that parable by Nathan to him about that little ewe lamb when he famously said, that man shall pay fourfold. And Nathan said, you're the man. And if you consider, and I've mentioned this before, preaching on David, that he did pay fourfold himself. The child uh, between himself and Bathsheba died. Amnon was murdered by Absalom. And then Absalom died. And then Adonijah, while David was on his deathbed, or perhaps shortly after he died, Adonijah, four, four sons, he paid fourfold for his sins. So that pronouncement was against him. And he made that judgment himself. God brought him to do it. Nobody's denying that. David may also have had a hand in penning some of those psalms that are known as, as songs of ascents or songs of degrees, beginning with 121. And David's name is given to at least three or four of them. And I don't have a hard time. Of course, I incline to, to try to reckon all the psalms to be of David, and I know they're not, but I'm just ex- exposing my bias Um, But his name is given to three or four of them. And this group of these Psalms of Ascent, Songs of Degrees, Spurgeon has remarked on them as a group while remarking on 121 in particular. And Charles H. Spurgeon says this, this bears no other title than a song of degrees. It is several steps in advance of its predecessor For it tells of the peace of God's house and the guardian care of the Lord. While Psalm 120 bemoans the departure of peace from the good man's abode and his exposure to the venomous assaults of slanderous tongues. I got to that place and I stopped and I'm thinking about David's verse here. Judgments for all that are oppressed. And I wonder, are there any of us, any of us, Not just those here in this room right now, but any of us in this body of believers. Any true believers that have not experienced oppression from venomous assaults of slanderous tongues. I doubt it. Doubt it very much. And if you haven't (laughs) been subjected to some venomous assaults of slanderous tongues, maybe you're not doing everything all right. And maybe those venomous assaults and those slanderous tongues are your own kin. I'll move on. In the first word, keep. The word keep. In the first instance, his eyes looked around with anguish, but here they look up with hope from the constant recurrence of that word, keep. We are led to name this song. That is, Spurgeon is naming it, I suppose. A psalm to the keeper of Israel. That's what this verse 6 of 103 is talking about. God as the keeper of his people, the keeper of Israel, the Israel of God. He says, were it not placed among the pilgrim's songs, we should regard it as a martial hymn. 
That's martial as in warlike. That's martial as in military. That's martial as in pertaining to war, not Marshall Dillon. That's martial warlike. He says we should regard it as a martial hymn were it not for it being among these pilgrim songs. We should regard it as such, fitting for the even song of one who slept upon the tainted or tented rather field, referring to David's many occasions of being engaged in battle, in war, in fleeing, in chasing, in spending many a night in a tent and upon a tented field with his soldiers. It is a soldier's song, Spurgeon goes on, as well as a traveler's hymn. There is an ascent in the psalm itself which rises to the greatest elevation of restful confidence. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Do you realize that we have a watchman that never sleeps, that never slumbers, that is watching and protecting us every moment of every hour of every day. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep. We find God referred to in Scripture and in the writings of theologians and so on, not only as our friend, but in terms such as defender, protector, governor, advocate, champion, judge. And one denominated him the Prince of Providence. He rules Providence. So while other people might call Providence chance or luck, it's not. And our God and our Lord Jesus, they are worthy of being denominated princes of providence. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. What a thought that is to realize how protected we are. And the love behind that protection. I couldn't help but be reminded when in Psalm 118, Verses 7 and 8, I'll paraphrase it. The Lord takes our part. But we're not far away from it. Let's go ahead and look at it. Psalm 118, 7 and 8. Jehovah is on my side. That's enough, isn't it? He takes part with me. He's on my side. Among them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. It is better to take refuge in Jehovah than to put confidence in man. I was reminded, my, my dad was a, a small person. I'm not big, but he was even considerably smaller than I am. And he was very sensitive and quick with his mouth. Not really good for a small guy. Not good for anybody, of course, if you're, if you're representing Christ, but, which he wasn't, sadly. But he told me a story about being in a car driving down Detroit, and he had this fellow worker that was about six foot six and 270 pounds, and 
got into some kind of an altercation in the traffic or something. He's rolling down the window and hollering at somebody. Little guy, big mouth. <laughs> and he has all this confidence in this big guy sitting next to him. He thinks, he's, he thinks, hey, I got him on my side. I got him next to me. And these people, a couple of them, start coming over toward the car. And he looks over, and that big guy is like this with his hand up. On the handle, there's no way he's going to let that guy open that door. And he realized there, and then he trusted that guy. When we put our confidence in man, in men, we'll find it empty and in vain. Empty and in vain. In Psalm 121, which we're looking at a little bit, that first one of the Psalms of Ascent that we referred to, and that Spurgeon was referring to, we read some of these things. And as far as in 121, where we read, as I've already indicated and mentioned, he that keepeth Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Jehovah is thy keeper. He is thy shade upon thy right hand. I thought maybe David was thinking about that occasion. Do you remember? when Saul was pursuing after him. And David came upon their camp. And he said, who will go with me down to their camp? And Abishai, one of his nephews, went with him. And perhaps one other. They went down to the camp and they found, they found Saul sleeping with his spear stuck in the ground. They used to sharpen the wooden ends of their spears so they could stick them in the ground and have them at the ready in his helmet right there, or his water container, rather, right there as well. And Abner, his chief, was laying alongside there, sleeping too. They slumbered and slept. Abner was supposed to be the one to guard King Saul. That was his job. That was his position. And he was failing at it, and David didn't let him get away with that either. In 1 Samuel, we read about that in 1 Samuel 26. And he's taunting Abner, taunting him for his failure. Listen to what he says. In 26, I'm sorry, yeah, 26. 16. 16. Yeah, I'm sorry, I seem to have written down the wrong. But anyway, I know what happened. He stood up and he cried out to Abner. And he said, what's the deal? You're supposed to protect your Lord, the king. And there you are sleeping on the job. And I'm just suggesting that maybe David had that in mind when he was writing this Psalm 121, that God, Jehovah, never slumbers, never sleeps. And he recalls that wonderful example of how men fail. Abner failed King Saul. And David speared him, as it were, and placarded him with that failure before all the men of Saul and all his men. Abner failed King Saul. But Jehovah is ever faithful to his own. And we want to make a point here. It's not, not thy faith. One writer said, it's not thy faith, but God's faithfulness 
that keeps us. The faithfulness of him that neither slumbers or sleeps. These Psalms of Ascent, looking at just 121 through 125, how that Jehovah keeps his people in 122.5. For there are set thrones for judgment. God is to, he's going to judge people. That doesn't just mean at the great judgment, but he judges people all the time. And he brings them, when he, when he has declared, when he has ordained to do it, he brings them to a judgment. He judged Absalom, for example. He judged Amnon. And they both forfeited their lives. There are set thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. And in 123, too, the psalmist is written, so our eyes look unto Jehovah our God until he have mercy upon us. He is the merciful and the righteous judge. And he is the one whose eyes go to and fro everywhere. He sees everything. He looks upon everything. He considers everything. He knows all things. Nothing is out of his sight. Nothing whatever. That 124. There's so much in that. I felt the need to, to read the entire eight verses. David wrote, If it had not been Jehovah who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been Jehovah who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they had swallowed us up alive when their wrath was kindled against us. Then the waters had overwhelmed us. The stream had gone over our soul. Then the proud waters had gone over our soul. Blessed be Jehovah who hath not given us as a prey to their teeth. Our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we are escaped. Well, how did the snare become broken? How did you escape as a bird out of the snare? How was it that you weren't given over to the prey as a prey to their teeth and so on? How is it that the waters didn't overwhelm you? The last verse, our help is in the name of Jehovah who made heaven and earth. Our hope is in the name of Jehovah, the very name that David begins this psalm with, bless Jehovah, O my soul. God is our keeper. God is our all in all. And in 125, in the second verse, as the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so Jehovah is round about his people. That's, he's keeping us. He's keeping watch over us. And he never slumbers and he never sleeps. He keeps us in his hand. Was it not even declared this morning that he keeps us in his hand? None is able to pluck us out of his hand. None. William Cooper is the one who wrote that hymn that we read at the beginning. He was a very troubled individual, as we've already made mention. Surely not a run-of-the-mill English poet. And yet he wrote, and yet he wrote, also, there is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all 
their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, here's this man, William Cooper, saying, and there have I, as vile as he, washed all my sins away in the blood of Jesus Christ. And yet he died, as I understand from the biographers, without assurance. Died without assurance. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die, but evidently it wasn't. At least he wasn't able to sing it. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. What a hymn. From this tortured, tormented individual living 68 years, up and down, in and out, trying to take his life those many times. Ironically, I think each of these hymns are echoing David's 103rd Psalm. Jehovah executeth righteous acts and judgments for all that are oppressed. How is it that this is the case? It puts us in mind this in and out, this up and down, this, what what do they call it today? Bipolar or something? William Cooper, um, one day he's in, one day he's out. Um, Schizophrenic or something, I don't know what the terms are. But how ironic it is that he writes hymns like this and it puts us in mind of an account about Leonardo da Vinci, the painter of the famous Last Supper. And I, don't have, I didn't have time to check this out, and I don't know if this is an urban legend or what. But I remember hearing this years ago that according to this account, da Vinci was having a very hard time finding an individual to use as a model to paint Judas Iscariot. Eventually, he came across this fellow who looked extremely mean-spirited and desperate, rough-looking and vile in so many ways, perfect to sit and be painted as Judas. So he approached the man and asked him if he would sit for him. And the man said, don't you remember me? It had been about three years or at least. Don't you remember me? And then she said, no, I don't remember you. And he said, I sat for you to paint Christ. I said, I don't know if that's a true story or an urban legend, but it certainly is interesting, and we can see how that it could easily happen, the way men are so fickle and flexible. In the matter of Haman the villain, you remember Haman and Esther, we see God executing his judgment in righteous, act, in righteous acts. He executes judges. Who were oppressed? The Jews were oppressed. And Haman was the chief oppressor. You remember that. Now he was next to the king, Ahasuerus. And he was plotting against Mordecai, Esther's uncle. She had become queen. And he was plotting against her and her people with her because he hated how Mordecai had gotten glory and he hadn't. 
So he's plotting. And how did God overturn that? You likely remember that it was because the king couldn't sleep one night and he asked for a book to be brought to him. And he's looking in the book and here he discovers that somebody had saved his life by divulging a plot that he had overheard to assassinate the king. And he said to Haman, Did any, has this man been rewarded? And Haman said, no. And he told him, you take him out, you give, put the king's ring on his finger and give him all this kingly robes and so on and let him ride in the king's chariot and take him, take him up and down the main street where everybody can praise him and salute him and give him glory. You can imagine how much Haman enjoyed doing that. Ultimately, of course, Haman forfeited his life in his plot being discovered and overturned. And he was hanged on the very gallows that he had prepared to hang Mordecai. But how absolutely sovereign and perfectly exquisite and remarkable was God's sovereign disposal of that anti-Semite. It was, if I can put it this way, it was beautiful. I'm talking about the sovereignty was beautiful and the, how remarkable it was. It was indeed exquisite, the way that it was turned around. Just like the scriptures tell us, the man that digs a pit shall fall therein. And God brought that to pass. But we're told in this verse that Jehovah executeth righteous acts and judgments for all that are oppressed. Did he do anything unrighteous in settling this matter of Haman and Mordecai? He didn't do a thing unrighteous. God executes righteous acts in order to provide for his people, in order to spare all those that are oppressed, all his people that may be oppressed. Absolutely beautifully done and, and nothing unjust or unrighteous in the methods that God employed. We may not always see well enough to satisfy our faith. But our faith is not sight. Do the scriptures not teach us that? That our faith is not sight. Sight or insight may be given as God is pleased to do so. We think of the faith of the woman that had a, an issue for so many years, had given up all her money to physicians. Sounds almost like 20th century, huh? And she wanted to just touch Christ's garment, and she knew she had faith. Christ told her, thy faith hath made thee whole. She touched his garment, and that flow was stanched immediately. We think of Elisha's young man in 2 Kings chapter 6. Remember how they were surrounded? Elijah and his young servant, called his young man in my copy. And they were surrounded by the Syrians. And this young man basically said, what are we going to do? And Elisha said, those that are for us are more than against those that are against us. And the young man, what are you talking about? And he prayed to God, Lord, open the young man's eyes. And God opened the young man's eyes and the hills were filled with chariots 
of fire. They were more that were for Elisha and his young man than were against him. God opened his eyes, and he can do that when he pleases. Open the eyes. He can give faith to the woman with the issue of blood. But we think of poor William Cooper, the hymn writer. And his faith was as fickle as it could be. Here today, gone tomorrow. How did he die? I've already suggested what I've read about that. Most accounts suggest that he died with little faith in his ultimate salvation. Without any assurance at all. Poor fellow. But I would remind you that we are not saved by our faith. We are not saved by our faith. We are saved by Jesus Christ. Neither are we saved by our assurance. We are saved by Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for that gift of faith that enabled us to apprehend Christ and also enabled us to know that it wasn't our faith that saved us, but it was our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Messiah, our Redeemer, the Son of God himself in flesh that gave his life that we might have life. We thank thee and praise thee again tonight. May we never tire of thanking thee as we anticipate thanking thee forever and ever. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. You'd stand for the benediction. From Exodus 14. Verses 13 and 14. Moses and the people seeing Pharaoh and his army coming after them after they had been enabled to cross dry shod the Red Sea. Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of Jehovah, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today Ye shall see them again no more forever. Jehovah will fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace.